The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. I was not the last person with her. This is all I can say. I'm sorry, but I just hope that they find her as soon as possible, and I'm praying for her and her family. My first thing is to say to the person that has Lauren or that has harmed Lauren, shame on you. Shame on you. Um, in relationship to that, the person that knows this person that's not coming forward with the information, I beg you to come forward. An autopsy is scheduled for today to determine if a body that's been found is that of missing Indiana University student Lauren Spearer. They refuse to take a police polygraph. Charlene says she doesn't believe Lauren's abduction is a random act. I think that somebody that Lauren knew was responsible for the events of the evening. She broke down in tears, recalling when she and her husband visited the area outside the bar where Lauren went on her last known hours. Girls walking home alone and um, as, if, as if her disappearance didn't make any difference. There is a tenor of distress in a mother's appeal. An IU student who seemingly vanished. The picture of the pretty co-ed now taped to age-old trees. Somebody knows something. Just the littlest of things. Just step forward and say something. It's all they need. Get some people some closure. Lauren would have graduated in May. It's a baffling case with no suspects and only a surveillance video of the last time she was seen. Just the worst mother's dream. I mean, just the finalness of it. Just not knowing, not knowing. society something you are listening to serial spirits the podcast
All right, guys, welcome to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It is me, your host, Brendan Shea, and with me, as always, is my beautiful, lovely co-host. Annie Weaves. How are you, Shea Bay? I'm good. How about you, Annie? We're good. We're hanging in there like a hair in a biscuit, just ready for another week. Yeah, we are. You know, we've, we've gone over a few exciting stories this season so far on Serial Spirits, the podcast, and we're ready to launch into some more. But before we do that, I just want to say a couple things. One is that, you know, times are really tough and we want everybody to stay healthy and stay safe. And we know that there's people out there who are doing this quarantine by themselves. If you're still under quarantine and you're still home by yourself and you feel that mental pressure or you're dealing with some type of depression, you know, that started before this, there are people out there to help you. And I just want you to know there's numbers that you can call, you know, friends, family. Don't think that you're alone in this. If you're dealing with with something, you're having these thoughts that you think life should be over, please don't take your own life. Reach out to somebody because there's help out there for you. And I just want you all to know that you're not alone. Get the help that you need if you need help. We care about each and every one of you, whether we know you or not. And in our last episode, we released a clip that had a 1-800 number, a hotline, a suicide hotline. If you need help, please listen to that. You know, call that or get online, find another 800 number. Like Shay said, there are people out there. We love you. We hope for your well-being. We're all in this together right now. Also want to tell you guys again, we talked about it last week. We don't know if it's up in the air or not or what's going to happen, but Mothman Festival this year happens in September. It's usually the second weekend of September. We are doing a podcasting event with Hysteria 51, Hillbilly Horror Stories, and Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. And you can find tickets for that at eventbrite.com. You can check that out. It's going to be at the uh, VFW. Uh, They've done an event there before. It was a good time. Annie spoke at it last year. And uh, guys, I mean, it's still up in the air, but tickets are still available. So go ahead and purchase those now. And you can come check us out at the Mothman Festival. After the festival daytime stuff is over, you can come listen to some spooky podcast stories and hang out with your favorite people. So what do we got for today, Annie? What what are we getting into? What are we diving deep into this week? Okay, so you guys, if you've listened before, you may or may not be aware that along with the podcast, I do a live show on Paranormal Warehouse, Serial Spirits Live, and we want to incorporate some of the stories that we've talked about on Serial Spirits Live in our podcast. This was one that I covered recently with Steve Brott. We really went down a rabbit hole with this one. I had always heard about this story, but once I started investigating and really digging into it, I had no idea how many twists and turns it took, how many people could have played a factor in the disappearance of this college girl. We're going to talk about the disappearance of Lauren Spearer. IU student Lauren Spearer's disappearance was arguably one of the highest profile missing person cases in America. And for her family, Monday marks yet another painful anniversary. Help us find Lauren. From the day their daughter disappeared, that has been a tireless plea from Charlene and Robert Spearer. Each time IU goes through a milestone since she's left, her friends come out and they search the campus again for any sign her family's here and they search again. It's, uh, she was a neighbor. It's, it's been really uh, horrible. While the Spears acknowledge that their daughter is likely dead, police say they continue to investigate the case. The Bloomington Fire Department erected new signs recently asking for information in her disappearance. Somebody knows something, just the littlest of things. Just step forward and say something. It's all they need. Get some people some closure. 
Lauren would have graduated in May. It's a baffling case with no suspects and only a surveillance video of the last time she was seen. It's just the worst mother's dream. I mean, just the finalness of it, just not knowing, not knowing. With more than 3,000 tips in the case, the Spears are no closer today to finding out what happened to their daughter two years ago. Lauren Spearer was born in January 1991 in Scarsdale, New York, an affluent town in Lower Westchester County. In 2009, Lauren enrolled at Indiana University, where she was studying textiles merchandising for a career in fashion. Lauren was active in the Jewish community at IU and had spent the previous spring break planting trees in Israel with the Jewish National Fund. Lauren had a circle of friends at Indiana U that she met during a summer camp at Lake Tawanda in Pennsylvania, including her boyfriend, Jesse Wolf and close friend, Jay Rosenbaum, who became important factors in Lauren's disappearance. The story of Lauren's disappearance begins on June 3rd, 2011, in the town of Bloomington, Indiana. That night, Lauren had stated she was going out with a group of friends to a bar called Kilroy's. Numerous people had contacted Lauren that night, and based on eyewitness accounts and surveillance footage from the neighborhood, Bloomington police put together a timeline of the night leading up to Lauren's disappearance. At 12.30 a.m., Lauren was seen leaving her apartment with a friend named David Roan. They went to Jay Rosenbaum's apartment, and she met up with Corey Rossman, Rosenbaum's neighbor. At 1.46 a.m., Lauren is seen entering Kilroy's Bar, which is half a mile from her apartment, an eight-block walk, with Corey Rossman. 2.27 a.m., Lauren is seen leaving the bar with Corey. Lauren left her cell phone and shoes at the bar. She had taken off her shoes when she walked out to a sand-covered patio. Corey said he then walked Lauren to her apartment complex. At 2.30 a.m., Lauren and Corey are seen entering her apartment complex, the Smallwood Plaza Apartments. A witness named Zach Oakes noticed that Lauren seemed very intoxicated and asked if she was okay. 2.48 a.m., Lauren and Corey are seen leaving her apartment and entering an alley that runs between College Avenue and Morton Street. Morton Street is a street over from her apartment building, going the opposite direction of Kilroy's Bar. Security cameras mounted on nearby apartments show her exit the alley at 2.51 a.m. and walk toward an empty lot. Lauren's keys and her purse were later found in that alley. Lauren and Corey Rossman arrive at Corey's apartment shortly afterward. Mike Beth, Corey's roommate, was at the apartment when they showed up. Mike said that Corey was very intoxicated and stumbling and vomited on the carpet on the way upstairs. Mike said that he put Corey to bed and tried to persuade Lauren to stay as well for her own safety. He said that Lauren said she wanted to return to her own apartment. At 3.30 a.m., Mike said he called his neighbor and their mutual friend, Jay Rosenbaum, asking him to take care of Lauren. Mike said that Lauren tried to get him to go back to her apartment with her to drink more. Mike said that he refused, and shortly after, Lauren arrived at Jay's apartment, where he observed a bruise under her left eye. She told him she didn't know how she got the bruise. Jay said that Lauren used his phone to make two calls before she left since her phone was at the bar. She called David Roan, the friend that she began the night with, and another unnamed friend. Neither answered and no messages were left. At 4.30 a.m., Jay said that Lauren left his apartment. This is the last reported sighting of Lauren Spearer. He reported seeing Lauren last at the intersection of 11th Street and College Avenue 
heading south on College, which was two blocks from her apartment building. Lauren was barefoot, wearing black leggings and a white shirt. So Shay, that's kind of the rough timeline of what happened to Lauren based on eyewitness accounts, the security cameras that they, they have all over this neighborhood at IU. But the story gets tricky from here on out. Well, I mean, it sounds like just a normal night. You know, we've all had those nights where we've gone out, hung out with our friends and, you know, people get a little too drunk and then they wander wherever, here, ever. You convince them to stay. They want to go somewhere else. And, you know, sometimes you just pass out, you forget and you wake up the next morning. You're like, oh man. So this just sounds like a regular night. Not exactly. And this is what we're going to get into now. So here's where the story gets complicated. Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse Wolf, claimed that he did not go out with Lauren that night. In fact, Lauren had actually told Jesse that she was going back to her apartment to go to bed. But the details of the night that were told by other friends painted a much different picture of the last night that Lauren was seen. Jay Rosenbaum claimed that when Lauren and David Roan showed up at his apartment, they told him that they had been snorting clonopin before they arrived, and he thought they also might have been doing cocaine. After drinking at Jay's apartment, Lauren and Corey Rossman went to Kilroy's bar. After leaving the bar, when Corey accompanied Lauren to her apartment building, Corey said that while at her building, he was in a confrontation with someone and was punched in the face, but he couldn't remember who he fought with. A witness who lived in the building later came forward and said that Corey had been in a fight with a group of Jesse Wolf's friends. Corey said that after the fight, he and Lauren left her building, heading back to his apartment. On the way, he said that Lauren fell twice, possibly explaining the bruise on her face. Corey said that Lauren was so intoxicated at that point that he had to pick her up and carry her back to his apartment. After she left their apartment, Jay Rosenbaum was the last person to confirm seeing Lauren alive at 4.30 a.m. You have to understand that this group of kids at IU were from pretty wealthy families, and they may have had access to things that their parents were not aware of. Something that Lauren Spearer's parents said later on was that they did not realize there was such heavy drug use at IU, but it came out later that it was very typical. There was cocaine being sold. There were narcotic drugs being sold. It was even said at one point that Corey Rossman was selling cocaine. Well, the, the, you said that they snorted Klonopin. And for those of people who don't know, can you explain kind of what Klonopin is? Klonopin is an anti-anxiety medication. It falls in the benzodiazepine uh, classification of drugs. And so it's meant to mellow you out. But of course, you crush and snort anything, it can have a totally opposite effect. So if she had taken Klonopin, if she had done any type of cocaine and then drank on top of that, it would understand why she was so intoxicated that she couldn't walk. Lauren was barely five feet tall and weighed 90 pounds. Oh, yeah. So she I mean, was a she, tiny person. You snort anything. I mean, your body just absorbs it right away. Right. And that's why people snort pills and everything else because they get that quick high. She was intoxicated enough that she left her cell phone and her shoes at the bar that she drops her purse and her keys in this alleyway and just goes on about her business. Well, I don't want to, you know, read into too much of the story because I don't really know what's what's going to transpire here. But I can honestly say and maybe vouch for the stories that have been told that 
if she was that intoxicated, it would explain if she had fell, fallen that many times, explain why her face was all bruised. Because sometimes when, you know, I've had them nights too where I wake up and I'm like, how did my knee get all bruised? It's because supposedly I, or apparently I fell three or four times, you know what I mean? Walking somewhere or doing something. So that, I mean, that makes sense. If she was that intoxicated, I mean, she's doing all these different mixing all these drugs. It, it, that, 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 that makes sense. I felt so terrible for Lauren's parents watching these interviews that they did, and they did so many. I think they really had no idea what was going on with the kids at IU. They had no idea that they had sent their always well-behaved, very loving daughter to this place where these kids were mixing up all this stuff. But you know, you're young, you're with, you know, people your own age, nobody's around, you're out on your own for the first time. Those pressures are there to do things that you wouldn't normally do, especially if you already started drinking, you're already, your, your free will is gone. Right. And like you said, these are all trust fund kids and they have access to all this stuff. Lauren's friends began tweeting her missing info to celebrities and personalities like Ryan Seacrest, Anderson Cooper, Lady Gaga, and Kim Kardashian, who all tweeted about Lauren's disappearance. America's Most Wanted did a two-minute spot about Lauren, and a huge boots-on-the-ground search began. A $100,000 reward was offered for information leading to Lauren's recovery and was eventually increased to $250,000. And as Lauren's trail grew cold, a list of suspects and theories about Lauren's disappearances began to heat up. We'll be back after this short break. Hey there, fellow pod people. I'm Erin. And I'm Heather. And we are the creators of That Would Go Good With Vodka. Because everything goes good with vodka, including murder, mystery, mayhem, and a spatter of inappropriate humor. This is your personal invitation to join us as we deliver to you some of the darkest and most blood-curdling crimes that will keep you up all night hoping for daylight. We love our home state of Michigan and like to stay close to home, but we also enjoy traveling, so we will be telling stories from all over the world. That Would Go Good With Vodka is a weekly podcast. Tune in on Fridays for a fresh episode. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you enjoy your podcasts. Or you can visit our social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us on Fridays because I'm funny and I know things. Hi, I'm Cassie. I'm Tiffany. And we're the hosts of Happy Hour Gets Weird. On our podcast, we talk all things weird, like UFOs, Bigfoot, astrology, ghosts, and even true crime. And every episode, we create a fabulous new cocktail. So fabulous. If you're looking for a little weirdness, please search Happy Hour Gets Weird on your favorite podcast platform. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. So Annie, guess what? What? Shay? I just got off the phone with Mike Diamond. You know, Mike Deli Meats. Deli Meats. Yeah, and he just told me that we have a Patreon set up. We do have a Patreon. One hundred percent. Hot diggity dog. And we are so excited to be part of this Patreon with ParanormalWarehouse.com because guess what? You can get our podcast exclusively a week early. 
before everybody else gets to hear it. And that's pretty sweet. Not just can you get Serial Spirits a week early, you can get all the shows that Paranormal Warehouse has to offer, plus all kinds of Paranormal Warehouse merch that is not available to the public. Patreon.com forward slash Paranormal Warehouse. Guys, this is where it's at. Live out your best quarantine days watching Paranormal Warehouse. You won't regret it. Alex King from the American Ghost Hunter Show, he just got a sweet Serial Spirits tank top. And let me tell you what, his nipples do hang out of them. His nipples have never looked better. So become a patron today. Go to patreon.com forward slash Paranormal Warehouse. Get our show a week early with some other cool stuff. Hey guys, I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. We are the host of Hillbilly Horror Stories. What we do every week is we tell you mostly paranormal stories, and then we throw in a couple of uh, unsolved mysteries, maybe a little bit of true crime if it's creepy enough. And the beauty of this is that Tracy doesn't know the show, correct? This is correct. Never do. So then what happens when you don't know the show... I'm just as surprised as anybody else is. And that's the beauty of what our show is. We basically get the same reactions out of Tracy as what the listener at home is getting. And I think that's been a success to our show so far. Yeah, I think it works. We also use our show to promote mental health awareness and suicide awareness every show. So we get the added bonus of trying to help people out while you get to listen to paranormal shows. Amen. And that's what's important to us. So please subscribe to Hillbilly Horror Stories wherever you listen to your other podcasts. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. So this immediately began all these theories about what could have happened to Lauren after this night of partying with her friends. So many theories came out looking at the usual suspects and also the very unusual suspects. One of the first theories of what happened to Lauren that night was that she might have died of an accidental overdose. Lauren suffered from something called long QT syndrome, which is a cardiac arrhythmia. So any type of drug that she had taken that night combined with alcohol could possibly have had a factor in that cardiac problem that she had. They also found cocaine in her room after the police searched it. On top of that, There was a really strange story told by an inmate at an Indiana State Prison regarding a felon named Corey Hammersley. Corey was a student at IU with Lauren and her friends for some time before he was sentenced to 24 years in prison in 2013 after having a meltdown while high on drugs. He stripped naked. He went on this crazy rampage with a 9mm pistol shooting at Bloomington police. And so he was put in jail for 24 years for that. One of Hammersley's cellmates claimed that Lauren's disappearance came up in a conversation that he had with him. And Hammersley said, man, I knew the guys that did that. He said they were drinking and doing ecstasy. She overdosed and it scared them. They didn't know what to do with her and they took her down to the Ohio River and got rid of her. Shay, unfortunately, that is something that we've heard in other cases, dumping bodies in the Ohio River. And if that's what happened to Lauren, most likely she will never be found. Yeah, we've heard that before. And what really 
gets my interest is that this guy, he says she overdosed and they didn't know what to do with her body. And that to me, I mean, I honestly believe that. He apparently knew this group of kids and he was so high. There were pictures of it online. He's stripped naked, running through the, sh- the streets with a nine millimeter shooting at the police. They sentenced him to 24 years for that. So maybe that is what happened. If she had long QT syndrome, it is very possible that the mix of what she took that night could have caused her to go into some type of cardiac arrest. Yeah, that's, you know, I honestly believe that this could be the whole scenario right here. Uh, I know that there's a lot of theories and I'm sure we're going to get into it. But I mean, if I heard that right away, alarm bells are going off to me like, yeah, this is this is one of them stories where kids got scared and they had to hide the evidence. If Corey Rossman had been selling cocaine and they found cocaine in Lauren's room that they could trace back to him, maybe they panicked. He didn't want his life to be over and they just got rid of her. It was easier than destroying their own lives. Yeah, because then at that point, he's he's culpable for basically contributing. Right. Selling, selling an illegal substance to her, a narcotic, and he's just as guilty. That was the first of many theories that came out. The second one seems a little far-fetched. It was theorized that Lauren may have been purchasing her drugs from a motorcycle gang called the Sons of Silence. It was believed that she could have been killed for a debt that she owed. An ABC News report stated that messages had been found from a member of the group who called himself Bodine, but his real name was Robert Strange. Online messages coming from one of Strange's relatives claimed that Strange shot Lauren in a dispute over drugs and money and then buried her on his property. I find it a little hard to believe that she was killed by a motorcycle gang or that she had been even been purchasing her drugs from a motorcycle gang if Corey Rossman had also been selling drugs. So why this Bodine apparently sent these messages saying that he killed her is still an unknown. In this news report, they actually go to Bodine's house and he opens up the door and kind of says, I know what y'all are here about, but I don't have anything to say. I didn't kill that girl and just kind of slams the door in their face and that's it. This is kind of a far-fetched theory, I think, but when you're a police officer, I guess if you are at a point where you exhausted a one lead, you have to take another lead. But it's funny that this guy, you know, out of the blue comes out of the woodwork. His name is Bodine, but his real name is Strange. I mean, that's kind of strange. I was going to insert a Marvel Doctor Strange joke right there, but I figured it'd probably be inappropriate. But I mean, it, it's it's a theory. Nonetheless, my personal opinion, I don't believe it. I, I don't for one second believe it. I think she, somebody she was murdered yeah, by a motorcycle gang. I think somebody got mad at Bodine and tried to take it out on him and just he was an easy target. I I really don't think he had anything to do with it. A motorcycle gang, a little. Well, you know, people got to get their drugs somewhere. and Maybe to an extent they did supply maybe once or twice to these kids. But I'm pretty sure that they had access to whatever they wanted because they had this, all this money. So. Right. OK, so let's talk about the obvious suspects the people who last saw and spoke with Lauren that night. Number one was Jesse Wolf, Lauren's boyfriend. They had been together for three years. Lauren's family and her friends knew Jesse well and said that he was an amazing boyfriend to her. His story was that he had stayed at his apartment that night and was watching the NBA Finals, which ended at around midnight. He said that Lauren told him that she was going to bed that night, not going out with a group of guys. 
Jesse stayed in town for the first few days to help search for Lauren, but then went home to Long Island with his parents. Jesse remained quiet about Lauren's disappearance, but his parents had a lot to say to the media. Jesse's mom, Nadine, claimed that Lauren had a long-standing drug problem, had already been arrested for public intox, and was even kicked out of that camp in Pennsylvania because of her drug use. In a 2013 article in USA Today, Nadine Wolf was quoted saying, quote, If Jesse was guilty of anything, he was guilty of taking care of Lauren, who had some serious drug issues. She would abuse to the point where she would black out. Jesse always threatened to call and tell her parents, and she said, If you do, I'll break up with you. My son took care of her for two years while she was at college. The one night she went out without him and did what she did unfortunately cost her her life. End quote. Bloomington police stated that Jesse refused to take a polygraph test, but his parents report that he took an independently administered test and passed. So Jesse, you know, according to her friend said, they said, I don't think Jesse would have anything to do with this. They had no reason to believe that he lied about not being where he was that night. And Jesse's parents were very straightforward and said, he kept her out of trouble for a long time and, and he just couldn't do it anymore. The only possible motive that I can see maybe him reacting and getting angry, which I think any boyfriend would get angry if they're sitting at home by themselves, their girlfriend says, I'm going to bed. And then you find out that she went out with a group of guys. Well, remember, if you go back to that statement that that one student said, the group that he got in the fight with may have been a group of Jesse's friends, exactly. Corey Rossman. That's what I'm saying. So he found right. out. And then maybe tracked her down. Maybe. And maybe she called him or maybe they came up with an idea to meet somewhere and he picked her up because she was so hammered and was going to take him back to his place and they got into a fight. She didn't have her phone with her after she left the bar and it wasn't reported that Jesse was one of the people that she made a call to. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe he found out. Maybe he was jealous. Maybe she called him from somewhere else. I have no idea. But on the other side, too, if the stories are true that he did take care of her and he did keep her out of trouble, he did threaten to, you know, intervene with her drug abuse problem, which it sounds like she, you know, she had. I can't I can't say to somebody because you've been arrested for public intoxication that you necessarily have a problem. Right. But it seems that there's a pattern here that she would black out. Right. So, I mean, if she's drinking or doing drugs every night, and she's to the point where she's blacking out. There's a problem there. Maybe he did keep her out of trouble. And the one time that she goes out on her own, something bad happens because he's not there to protect her. It sounds like she probably wasn't honest with him about where she was going that night because he had threatened to tell her parents about what was going on. And if he had been with her for three years, then he knew her family well enough to know that if her parents had known that that was going on, they would have brought her home immediately. And not only that, you see a pattern with people who are habitual drug users or they have an alcohol problem that they make make promises to you like I won't do that again I won't do that and then they stop doing something for a long time and then you stop hearing from them they feel bad because you know well what if they found out that I did this after I promised them you know and a lot of people that I've known have that problem that they try to hide it as best they can well that's a true addict if this is something that had been a long-standing problem with her then she probably was trying to hide it The second suspect that police focused on was Corey Rossman. Corey was the person that Lauren spent the most time with that night. They entered Kilroy's at 2 a.m., left at 2.27, 
going from Lauren's apartment to his apartment. Let's not forget the fight that Corey was in that night while in Lauren's apartment building. There was a report that stated that while getting off the elevator on Lauren's floor, Corey was approached by a group of men who didn't like how he was handling Lauren. Remember, he said that Lauren was so intoxicated that at one point he threw her over his shoulder and carried her, and then Lauren later appeared with bruises on her face. Eyewitnesses confirmed Corey's involvement in the fight, and Corey didn't deny the confrontation, but stated that he had no memory of what happened after the fight that night because of the blow to the head that he took. A statement that played in Corey's favor, though, was that his roommate, Mike Beth, stated that he put Corey to bed that night after he and Lauren showed up at their apartment because he was so intoxicated. So there was another claim that came from her apartment building, not stating that it was Jesse Wolf's friends. Maybe they didn't know, but just that he got off the elevator with Lauren. This group of guys said they he didn't like how they were handling Lauren, and that's when they got in a fight. He really played it up, though, and they played it up in the media that Corey claimed that he had no memory of what happened later that night. Did it happen because they were drunk and taking drugs? Did it happen because he took a blow to the head? He was still okay enough to get back to his apartment building, but it was there that Mike said that he got sick, he puked on the stairs, and he took Corey up and put him to bed, basically. There was a news clip, I think it was the 2020 show that they did about her. They actually follow Corey Rossman down the street talking to him. Corey says, quote, I wasn't the last one with her that night. I'm sorry. I hope they find her or something like that. So he actually says to the media, I wasn't the last one with her that night. I have a thought on the way that they, the people in the elevator said that they didn't like the way that she was being handled. It's possible that she was so hammered that he was trying to take care of her, but it's also possible that she was so hammered that maybe he was trying to force her to have sex with him or do something to him, you know, while they're in the elevator. They're both hammered beyond recognition so i mean that that could make sense and these guys just happen to get on the elevator when this is going on he throws her over her shoulder tries to take her out of there they don't like that so they confront him about it i mean it, if you see a woman who seems like she's completely belligerent you don't know if she's just been drinking all night or this guy gave her something and he's taking her back to his apartment to rape her you know what i mean so i could see myself intervening in a situation like that if he goes home and everything's fine and he his roommate puts him to bed, what's to say that his roommate didn't try something? She got pissed and left. You know, so if he's walking down the street saying, well, you know, I wasn't the last person to see her alive. I mean, that's kind of a strong, bold statement to being like there's obviously something we don't know that hasn't been released because this is still an active investigation. This is still... She's not been found. She's still missing. So they're not going to release all the details. And these guys probably aren't going to release all the details too, just to to save themselves. Secondly, I want to say that this guy was her friend, but I don't know if they were really, were they friends or was this guy just like her party buddy? He supplied her with, you know, her, her party goods. I don't really know the answer to that. He never really elaborates on the friendship or what else that they had, whether he actually sold her those drugs. These kids all lawyered up really quickly and took to the defense. And so what we also can't forget are the bruises on Lauren's face. If she fell in that alleyway twice, like Corey said she did, maybe that's how she got the bruises on her face. But again, 
this group of guys that he saw getting off the elevator, maybe they didn't know that. And they see a really, really messed up girl with bruises on her face, no shoes. It's the middle of the night. All she's wearing is this black t-shirt and leggings, which was confirmed by the videos. Maybe they did think that something more was going on. Also to that, you know, Corey is the only one who says she fell and that's how she got the bruises on her face. We really don't know if that's true or not. I find it funny, though, in all these cases that these rich kids lawyer up really quick is because they have the money to do it. Secondly, it's because their parents probably have some high reputation. It's like all my kids wrapped up in something they shouldn't be. We need to get legal you know, help right now. You see it in a lot of them cases with you know, college kids who have done the hazing and, you know, somebody's died or something like that. It's very, very convenient that they're the trust fund kids and bam, right there, a lawyer's walking in the middle of the interview before they even say, hey, you know, I want a lawyer. I'm going to go ahead and say out of the two suspects right now, the two people of interest, I'm going to go ahead and say that this Rossman guy really knows a lot more than he's letting on and he's the last one known to see her live. And he's claiming that she's got bruises on her body and he's confronted in an elevator by some guys who want to fight him because something doesn't look right. So, yeah, something's not right with this guy. Well, he wasn't the last one to see her alive. And this is confirmed by other people. But he was the only one who had gone out partying with her that night and saw her at all these in-between moments that seemed to be or could be really key in what happened to Lauren that night. He contributed to the fact that she was as inebriated as, according to him, right? He she, he helped contribute to that fact. He never comes out and says it, but, you know... It, he was if, with her, and they were buying drinks. He was with her. They were buying drinks, and... They were doing drugs. Right. That, that was confirmed. The next suspect was Jay Rosenbaum. Jay was the last known person to see Lauren that night. Jay had said that Lauren refused to stay at their apartment. She insisted on going home. She used Jay's phone to make a couple of phone calls. And then Jay said that he walked her to the front of the apartment building and he last saw her standing alone on the corner. Remember, she had no shoes, no phone, no keys, no purse. Even if she had gone home, I have no idea how she would have gotten into her apartment. But this guy just basically says... Yeah, we just kind of let her take off on her own. It is of note that Lauren's parents filed a civil suit against Corey, Mike, and Jay, stating that they were aware that Lauren was so intoxicated to a point that she was unable to care for herself, and they did not practice due diligence in making sure she returned home. The case was moved to a federal court since the defendants no longer resided in Indiana. Later, the case was thrown out by the judge due to lack of evidence. All of the above-mentioned men have maintained their innocence in Lauren's disappearance, and none have ever been charged with any crime. So Jay Rosenbaum literally just says, I let her walk out the door because she said she wanted to go, and he last saw her standing on the corner. It's just crazy to me that I don't want to keep saying that I've been in this situation before, but you've been we've all been in the situation where you have this friend who's just so drunk, you get pissed off and you're like, I just don't know what to do with this person. I'm I, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. But when it comes down to it, you have to deal with it in a way. You can't let somebody just walk off and and you know that they black out all the time. What is gonna happen? Especially a young woman in a college town 
walking the streets at night. You know she's inebriated and you let her go anyway. Side with him here and, and, and hear me out here because maybe this is not this is not me being misogynistic or anything like that. But sometimes in this situation, if you put your hands on a girl who's like that, she may go belligerent and be like, don't touch me and, and say whatever. And maybe he was trying to avoid that situation of being accused of something that he wasn't going to do. And I'm not trying to, to make it sound like that she would do that. We have to remember we're dealing with a bunch of people who are belligerently out of their mind drunk. So we don't we weren't at there in that second. So we can't put two and two together. But personally, myself, I don't think I could let you, if you were that belligerent and you were mad at me saying you were like you wanted to walk away, I don't think I could let you walk the streets by yourself without your shoes, without your purse, without your phone, without keys, without somehow of getting somewhere where I knew you were safe. But I mean, this guy doesn't, he doesn't put out the vibe to me that he did something to her. But then again, they were they were drunk. So I guess maybe he is a good person of interest too. Okay, now let's talk about the suspects that Lauren didn't know. The police began searching the neighborhood for potential leads, and over the course of the next few years, some major developments happened that drew authorities in various directions. The first was a man named James McClish. McClish was an ex-con who had just been released from prison for assaulting his wife when Lauren disappeared. Surveillance videos from the neighborhood showed that a white truck, much like the one that McClish drove, was seen circling the neighborhood close to where Lauren disappeared. McClish's former girlfriend came forward and said, you need to check him out. He was there. He made comments like, you know what happened to her? That same thing could happen to you. The woman alleged that McClish had killed Lauren and then buried her on a farm in southern Indiana. In 2016, 2020 covered the story of Lauren's disappearance and asked McClish to take a lie detector test, which he passed. So this guy kind of comes out of nowhere. They see his truck circling. And I've just got to say, I have never seen so many surveillance cameras in a neighborhood. And it's probably because it was so close to IU. It kind of reminds me of the way that Brian Schaefer disappeared in Columbus. You know, that street of bars there, it was close to the university. It was very well covered. But they basically see his truck circling back and forth. They find out that he's an ex-con. And then this girlfriend says that he made claims about Lauren as well. He passed this lie detector test. You don't know how truthful those things are, but he was dropped as a suspect from that point. I guess it's all the uh, means of investigation, the method that they use. You have to start out in the middle of people that she knows and then work your way out till you get to these people who make more sense, who have this criminal lifestyle. Here's a guy who's a convicted, you know, felon. His girlfriend's making claims that he's threatening her. And for all we know, they could have been fighting with each other. And he just wasn't, he just was a jerk. And he just said, hey, you know that girl that's missing? That might happen to you too if you don't keep your mouth shut. You know what I mean? If you don't leave me alone or give me my space or whatever, that could have been all he meant by this. And if he passed a lie detector test, yeah, they're they're not admissible in court. And sometimes you get away with murder by passing a lie detector test. You know, it's not to say that he's not involved in this some way, some or knows something or knows the people who did it. I mean, he ran in them circles. I can see that they looked at this guy for the investigative purposes of it. The most disturbing theory in Lauren's disappearance came in 2015 after the murder of another Indiana University student. Hannah Wilson was murdered in April 2015 
after a night out with friends to celebrate taking her final course. Hannah's roommate said that she arrived home that night by a cab. Although she didn't see her, she heard their front door open but never close, and Hannah's cell phone connected to their Wi-Fi. The next morning, when her roommate awoke, she found their front door wide open, Hannah's phone and her purse on her bed, but no Hannah. Later that day, Hannah's body was found in a remote area 15 miles from her home, cause of death, blunt force trauma to the head. The key to finding Hannah's killer laid right at her feet. There was a cell phone found at Hannah's body that was not hers. When police traced it, they found that it belonged to a man named Daniel Messel, a 49-year-old local print shop employee. On the night of Hannah's murder, Messel went to a bar just blocks from Kilroy's, where Hannah had been that night. Surveillance cameras later showed him circling the neighborhood and eventually following the cab that Hannah had gotten into. When police arrived at Messel's house, they found him taking out a clear plastic bag that contained bloody clothes and a mass of human hair in the truck between the driver and passenger seats. The blood and hair were Hannah's. Messel had an extensive violent past, which included a prison sentence for beating his grandmother with a two-by-four, although his friends at the time said they had no idea that he was capable of that, that he seemed like a normal, middle-class man. Messel was convicted of Hannah's murder and sentenced to 80 years in prison. After his conviction, more women from the Indiana U area came forward, stating that they had had problems with Messel as well. Several members of an IU sorority identified Messel as a man who had stalked the area near their house. Then, in 2018, Messel was tried and convicted of raping another IU student in 2012, when the student came forward and identified Messel as the man who had offered her a ride, driven her to a nearby lake, and assaulted her. DNA from the rape kit connected Messel to the assault, and he was sentenced to another seven years in prison. Also of note was the murder of another IU student in 2000, Jill Berman. Jill disappeared while taking a bike ride in May of that year, but her skeletal remains wouldn't be found until three years later. Her cause of death was a shotgun wound to the back of the head. A local man named John Myers was subsequently arrested and convicted of her murder, although he maintained his innocence. In October 2019, Myers' conviction was vacated after federal court determined that Myers was not adequately represented at his trial and that he might possibly go free. As of January of this year, the Indiana Attorney General requested that Myers remain in prison until it was decided if he should be retried or not. So now you have two additional murders in a span of 15 years, two of them in pretty much the same exact location. Hannah had been at the same bar that Lauren disappeared from that night. You see Messel circling this area. He had been drinking at another bar. I think it was called Yogi's, just a couple of blocks from Kilroy's. And it's pretty much the same MO. Hannah's friends said that they actually put her in the cab because she was so drunk that they were afraid for her to go anywhere alone. And then you see these surveillance cameras. You see her get in the cab. You see the cab down the street, and then you see Messel's Kia Sportage right behind her. So they're not entirely sure how, when she got home, what made her go back out front. 
but the door was wide open. It seemed she was abducted from right there in her house. And if they hadn't had Messel's phone laying there between her feet, Hannah's murder would probably still be unsolved as well. This makes a lot of sense to me. The only thing that doesn't make sense to me is a guy who maybe was a seasoned serial killer would mess up like that and leave his phone. But he was out drinking, so maybe that contributed to it. This almost, you know, fits the MO of like the Gainesville Ripper kind of thing where there was a guy on campus stalking young girls. I mean, we've seen it before. Ted Bundy killed people on campus. Uh, The Gainesville Ripper, Danny Rollins, stalked young females on campus too. And it would make sense that maybe there is a serial killer active in this area at the time. The MOs kind of fit. It's the same area. It's the same group of kids. But the point I want to make is that you see what this girl's friends did with her. They made sure that she was safe and got in a cab. The only thing that bothers me about these other guys in this case that we talked about was that they lawyered up so quick and didn't want to say anything. And that's why I kind of go back to the theory in the beginning of she may have OD'd and they got scared and didn't know what to do and dumped her body in the river like that guy said. But this, you know, it's it's this is an odd theory and it comes out of nowhere and it lends credibility to maybe why she's never been found because this guy was a seasoned serial killer. There's more people that he's killed that he's convicted for that he's going to tell. And I don't know. I mean, it's it's a plausible theory. One hundred percent. The police later said after they arrested Messel that they thought probably what happened was that Hannah was either knocked out or she had blacked out when this person picked her up. And then she awoke when she was in Messel's vehicle because it looked like there had been a fight there. The hair, there was a wad of her hair in the center console that looked like it had just been pulled out. And so they think she woke up, he panicked, and he, uh, you know, they got in a fight. And then he just got off at the first place that he could in this remote area, hit her with something, killed her, and then dumped her body. Can you imagine what went through that man's mind when he realized that his cell phone was gone. I mean, that was the key factor right there. This was literally the smoking gun laying between Hannah's feet. I would probably have ran back, but I don't know. I mean, maybe he didn't even realize he did it till afterwards when he got home. Yeah, like he had that oh shit moment of I'm done for. It's it's over. The, the things up. I and mean, that's why I'm saying if he was a seasoned serial killer, I know everybody messes up. They say serial killers do it to the extent to where they want to get caught, but they don't want to get caught. But I just don't see somebody being that careless who's done this so many times because they say when you're a serial killer, you develop your technique over time and you get better and better and better at it. And I just I just don't know. I, I don't I, I don't know that maybe he's not involved in this in this killing at all. And I don't know. It's hard to say. This is a really, really weird case. And. I just keep, like I said, I keep going back to them lawyering up so fast. They know more than what they're leading on to. And I just don't, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm at a loss. And I know you and Steve had a lot of theories too that you guys talked about uh, when you did it live. But I just, you know, I'm still, I'm, I'm dumbfounded at this, at this case. It's one of them ones that it's a, definitely a whodunit and where is she? But I can honestly tell you that I think, you know, it's sad to say, I think that she's dead. And I hope for the family's sake that they do find some closure here soon. They find her remains so that this they can get answers to these questions. Lauren's family has maintained a pretty constant social media and news media presence in hopes that at some point, someone is going to come forward with more information about her disappearance. 
There's a Facebook page called Official Lauren Spearer Updates from her family that has about 92,000 followers that her family posts from on a regular basis. One post that really got to me, and this sounds like a mother's way of thinking, but just this year, February the 10th, one of them wrote, Today is the day. I think I can start going through Lauren's things. It's over eight years. I go into her room. There are all the boxes standing at attention as if soldiers guarding her memories. I step in. I open the first box filled with clothes, each a reminder of a time I saw Lauren wear one of those shirts, a pair of pants, a skirt, a time of life, happiness, joy. I close the box. I leave the room. Today is not the day. There's a tip line if anyone has any information about the disappearance of Lauren Spearer. There is a number to call. It's 812-339-4477. And there's a poster underneath this tip line signed by all her family and friends. And it says, as determined as day one. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Lauren Spearer, the tip line number is 812 812- Three three nine four four seven seven. I can never imagine being in that situation, and for you know the mother's sake, especially as today, this weekend we're recording this. It's Mother's Day weekend. You know that they the family finds closure, and that her mother's able to put their daughter to rest, and she's brought home. Even if they remain unsolved, at least that the family members get to bury their loved one. So we're gonna wrap it up this week. Uh, Before I get into the final thoughts, I just want to say in the beginning of the episode, we talked about getting help for suicide prevention. Um, I just want to give you guys that number. Uh, The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. You can call the number and there's also a uh, website you can go to and you can text as well. But in my personal opinion, I find it easier to actually talk than, than type how you're feeling through text because we all know how that works out. But again, that number is 800-273-8255. Guys, you're not alone. There's somebody there and people do care. Whether you think that it's the end of, you're in the darkness and it, there's nothing can go forward, there's somebody there that cares. So reach out, please. Weebs, you got any final thoughts before we uh, say goodbye to our beautiful listeners this week? I mentioned before that we talked about this story on our live show, Serial Spirits Live. If you guys are on Facebook and you want to watch the live show, I'm on Tuesday nights from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The live show is much like the podcast, but you get to see us face-to-face talk about this and you can actually interact. There's a group chat that goes on. So if you guys enjoy Serial Spirits podcast, please head over there give us a like, follow Paranormal Warehouse, give them a like, and come say hi in the chat room on the live show. I'm going to have a lot more guests this year um, and talk about more true crime. So we love to have you guys over there as well. I'm so excited for uh, Serial Spirits Live to be on Paranormal Warehouse. It's going to be exciting to see you guys actually interact, get to see and talk firsthand with these cases with us. So it's going to be a good time and I'm looking forward to it. 
every week. Let's go ahead and give a quick shout out to our patrons this month. Bethany Hammontree and Cool Scout 09. Thank you so much for supporting Serial Spirits and Paranormal Warehouse. Guys, you guys rock. We love you guys. Thank you so much for supporting. And if you want to become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash paranormal warehouse. They have all kinds of cool merchandise live feeds that you can get on and we give you a shout out on every show i forgot to mention last week and i I really wanted to say this because i think it's important when you guys listen to these shows you hear some of these clips and we put these clips in and some of them are from youtube we get others from you know other sources but there's definitely full-length videos that you can watch and you can you can actually see what they're talking about in some of these clips if you go to our YouTube page, it's Serial Spirits, and you subscribe to our page, there will be a playlist, and it has the uh, liked videos that we've we've used on the shows. You can go and watch them in their entirety, and you can follow the links to other cases like it, like you know you would do on YouTube. So go to our page, youtube.com backslash Serial Spirits, and you can check this playlist out, and you can see all these videos for yourself. So with that being said... Farewell, guys, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. Find us weekly on all your podcasting platforms, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you subscribe. Our theme song was written and produced by Annie Weibel for Serial Spirits, the podcast. Check us out on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Serial Spirits. You can always find Serial Spirits on www.paranormalwarehouse.com. Check out all the amazing shows that Paranormal Warehouse has to offer. Also on Twitter at Serial Spirits. Guys, be aware and be safe. We'll see you next time. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Lauren Spearer, the tip line number is 812-339-4477.